Hello, and welcome to Vernacular Podcast, or sort of to Vernacular Podcast. This is where you'd normally hear vernacular, but today we are taking the opportunity to show you a new project of mine called Third String, a sports and news podcast hosted by yours truly and Pete LeCleed and Ishan Nath. And episode five of that we just released, and we are playing that for you here. So enjoy Third String, and if you want to listen more, you can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay tuned for next week, another episode of Vernacular Podcast, but in the meantime, enjoy Third String. All right, welcome back to Third String Podcast. I'm Zach, and joining me is my co-host, Pete LeCleed. Pete, how are you doing today? I'm hanging in there, buddy. Rough weekend in the uh, in the land of the Hokies, but otherwise I'm hanging in there. How about you? That's right, yeah. I, I was rooting for the Hokies last night, and I was thinking of you as I was watching Miami just really have a, have a statement win over the Hokies. I mean, it was not good. It was not good to be a Virginia Tech fan last night, so I feel no, your pain. No, it Very wasn't. Sorry. It, it not normally... That wasn't even a sentence. It doesn't normally go well for Virginia Tech in prime time. So I think, I think whatever cultural issues they had with Beamer are still going on. But I could, I could rant and rave about this for for hours. Yeah, for and, hours. and I could rant and rave about the Penn State loss to Michigan State, a loss that should not have happened, and just a sort of a weird afternoon overall. They're playing Michigan State. It's cold. They are uh, they're in the middle of the uh, second quarter when they go into a big lightning delay that lasts like three and a half hours, something ridiculous. Come back. Uh, end up losing on a last minute, last second field goal, and uh, just crushing. It's obviously Penn State's second loss, second consecutive loss too after losing to Ohio State last year. So a big dagger to their playoff hopes, which are looking pretty slim to none at this point. But so I'm hearing you. But I also enjoyed watching the Eagles uh, pound out a win over the Broncos today, also in statement fashion. So that was a lot of fun. So overall, coming off the weekend, I'm riding high given the recency effect of this Eagles win. But Good. And yeah. then the, the nation's got to be rejoicing with Ohio State losing in embarrassing fashion oh, in course. Iowa as well. Of course. Not, not a great weekend for the Big Ten, but probably a, a good weekend for all of us who like rooting against, uh, I, I, th- I think you could kind of call them the villains of college football. I think for some reason we associate them with the, the Yankees of baseball, the Lakers of basketball, that we love seeing the, the Giants fall and the Giants are falling. Not a good weekend for the Big Ten, but probably a good weekend for, for the SEC and the ACC. Yeah, and I'm always happy to see Ohio State lose. It is kind of a bad weekend for the Big Ten, though, so that was disappointing. But Michigan State looking unexpectedly strong, and we'll, we'll have to talk about Wisconsin later in this podcast, too, because I think there's there's a lot going on there that we need to talk about. So let's do that. Let's table the college football discussion, though, for the second half of the podcast. I think first, just uh, given that we haven't talked about the, the conclusion of the World Series, we've got to address that. So... Uh, let's start off with an easy question here. So we we had, for the second year in a row, a World Series that went to seven games. And it's, of course, always better when it goes to seven. Uh, but Game 7 was really kind of disappointing. After uh, amazing Game 2, amazing Game 5, huge point swings in both of, the, both of those, we had the uh, Dodgers come out in Game 6 and win, force a Game 7. Uh, and then uh, Game 7 uh, just, sort of, just sort of disappointed overall. Uh, not too exciting. So... Overall, how disappointed were you in uh, in the World Series Game 7 that we saw? 
I mean, yes, I, I, I think that kind of goes without saying that in terms of an exciting game, just wasn't really there after the second inning. I mean, I, I looked up the stats on when this game was actually kind of decided statistically and top of the second after Springer's three run home run, they already had a 78% chance of winning, which I think if you watch the next couple innings didn't really match. Obviously, obviously those statistics are a little, little skewed, but at the same time, by the top of the second, it was becoming very clear as you Darvish was imploding as the Astros were just raking against that Dodger pitching that it was it, it was it was kind of on the downslide which was disappointing to watch but speaking of, of George Springer tell me tell me what you thought about George Springer man yeah so I've been a fan of George Springer since he came into the league but he's been sort of uh so 2014 was his first full season in the majors um and he's he was and I say full season he played 78 games it was his for it was his rookie rookie status season but um, he hit 231 that year, uh, 68 hits, 20 home runs. So he showed a lot of power in the 78 games he played, but was not hitting well for average. And as he's come along in his career, he's really improved. In 2017, he hit 283, um, hit 34 home runs to go along with that. And I think he's really kind of coming to his own. But then we watched him in the postseason, and he was he was actually not very good. So in the 11 games before the World Series, he had 49 plate appearances. And in those 49 plate appearances, he hit 233, 327, 349. Only 10 hits, six walks, and which is which is decent for the plate appearances, but only one home run. So not seeing the type of power that Springer fans expected to see. And I remember hearing some some uh, pre World Series analysis of this and. Uh, some commentator, I forget who it was, was saying that it basically looked like Springer needed to kind of get his heart rate down and, and be comfortable at the plate. And he he definitely figured out how to do that in the World Series. And uh, he did it in MVP pa- in MVP fashion, which was pretty impressive to see. So he, he really kind of turned on the Jets for the seven-game series. Uh, 34 plate appearances. So remember I said 49 plate appearances before the World Series. So he had less plate appearances in the World Series than he did in the, in the previous 11 games. But he hit 379, 471. Uh, and a, a 1.000 uh, slugging. And then his uh, his OPS, so the on-base percentage plus slugging, was 1.471, which is just out of this world. 11 hits, 5 home runs, 3 doubles, 7 RBI, 6 walks. So, I mean, to give you an idea of the the quality here, if you were to extrapolate all this over a 162-game season, he'd hit 115 home runs. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of player this guy was <laughs> in the World Series. Now, obviously... We, we can't extrapolate that, but this has just given us an idea of how, how incredible Springer Springer was. And it was just fun to watch. He set the record for the most bases in a World Series, uh, tied the record for the most home runs. And by the way, Chase Utley of the Dodgers ho- uh, also holds that record from a previous series. So just a lot of fun to watch Springer. I was super impressed, and he was definitely deserving of that MVP. What, what did you think, Pete? Uh, man, couldn't, couldn't agree more. You took all my good stats that I was, I was going to bring up, but what really stood out to me was, was the eight extra base hit extra base hits in the eight runs. The fact that he just always seemed to be the guy in the mix, not only with, with the long ball, but just putting the ball in play, as you all know, especially in October that, uh, a three run shot is always great. But at the same time, when your team is down and your team is struggling, it's not necessarily the long ball you're looking for. You're looking for a double. You're looking to play a little, little bingo out there in the gap to just get something going. And Springer always seemed to be the guy who could find the gap, you know, the, the classic hit it where they ain't That's right. Um, and, and just get on base and just make it work. Um, and, and as the series was going, and especially looking back at that sports illustrated cover from 2014, I found myself, uh, like we talked about 
about two weeks ago with the Astros manager, A.J. Hinch, looking him up to figure out a little more about George Springer. And the more I learned about this guy, the more I liked him. Uh, and I found myself just rooting for him. So I, I became a little biased, I'll admit. Uh, but really everything that he as a player has overcome with how, how much he struggled in the early seasons. He's a 2011 pick out of UConn. Uh, but what I didn't know is watching more of his press conferences and more of his interviews, how much he's overcome a stutter, how much he's overcome his shyness to the media, uh, and how much he's just embraced the fact that he understands that as a professional baseball player on a good team who who is performing, that he kind of needs to, to be out there and, and be doing not only his best work on the field, but also making sure to improve himself off the field. So I found myself really, really rooting for him. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm looking for a player who gets it done. And I don't think anyone on the Astros, and, and I'll include Altuve, uh, I'll include Justin Verlander, I don't think anyone got it done more than George Springer did. So it was it was a lot of fun to watch, uh, especially in Game 7 if you're rooting for the Astros. Who, who better to root for than George Springer? Yeah, totally agree. And uh, with that said, though, George Springer did not really contribute to the Astros getting to the World Series. And so it's another reflection of the depth and the breadth of talent on this young team that... George Springer was basically falling asleep at the plate before the World Series began, and they still got there, and then he was able to carry him through once he kind of woke up. And it was just a ton of fun to watch. Um, I also found myself kind of biased in the favor of the Astros as I was watching these games, in part, though, just because I, I generally don't like uh, big payrolls. I like underdogs. And uh, in, for the 2017 season, the Dodgers had a $252 million payroll, and the Astros were at just more than half of that at $136 million. So just seeing how the Astros were able to do more with less, was a lot of fun and I was I was happy for them when they came out with a win. But let's say on this topic, let's let's do a hypothetical. So uh if we only if the World Series game seven was only innings three through nine, the Dodgers would actually be our World Series champions because the Astros didn't score after the second inning and the the Dodgers were able to score one run after the uh, end of the second inning. So in a world in which the Dodgers actually come away with it, who do you think would be the Dodgers World Series MVP? Oh man, I, I love a good what if. Um, so so looking at this, I I think it kind of breaks down with a couple guys who who really stood out. I think first and foremost, everyone wants to talk Clayton Kershaw, but I think pretty quickly you can see that while he did well for especially Clayton Kershaw in October, uh, his pitching really didn't make uh, a world of difference. That it was important but not a world of difference. So I think you got to look at the, the offensive numbers. And what it really comes down to me is Logan Forsyth or Jock Peterson. Logan Forsyth hitting 278 on a Dodger lineup that overall was just struggling, it appeared, uh, unless they were... Uh, unless it was game two, uh, honestly, game two or, or game six. So Logan yeah. Forsyth hitting 278, only four strikeouts. And I think the number you had to look at with this series, especially on the Dodger side, was the amount of strikeouts uh, and the fact that uh, we, we were seeing Aaron Judge like strikeouts from some of these guys, some of these top performers uh, who we expected. So I like Logan Forsyth, but who I really like uh, was Jock Peterson. So Jock Peterson hitting 338, eight strikeouts, a little higher than I'd prefer, but an OPS of one point. 344. And I think looking at Jock Peterson, it wasn't just the statistics that stood out at me, but as I was kind of replaying this series in my head, thinking about all of those big moments where you saw Jock Peterson performing, whether it was again hitting a double in the gap or with those long balls, I think occasionally he was taking swings uh, that were kind of taking him out of his shoes because he was so ready to put that ball out of the park. But overall, I don't think anyone on the offensive side uh, really stood out to me as much as, as Jock Peterson did. Uh, I looked at Puig a little. I 
think Puig had that excitement factor. I think his defense uh, certainly made an impact, but overall Puig's batting average was just so low uh, in this series compared to what we'd hoped for with an MVP caliber candidate that uh, I really stuck with Jock. How about you? No, I'm going to agree with you here. I looked at all the data. There were some guys that were really, really good for the Dodgers, like Charlie Culberson and Andre Ethier, but they were sort of situational guys. Each of them only had five at-bats in the series. So I sort of eliminated them, even though they they did well in the few at-bats they got. So yeah, on the batting side of the ball, it kind of comes down to Jack Peterson and Logan Forsythe. And I like Logan Forsythe because he kind of of reminds me of, of Ben Zobris, right? He's sort of your utility role guy. Um, he's not flashy, but he's consistent. Uh, and he had a great series. But yeah, Jock Peterson, just by the numbers alone, had a better series. And his OPS almost as good as George Springer's on the other side. What I like about Jock is how he he sort of just came out of nowhere for this series. His his regular season batting average, uh, two twelve, and you already mentioned his his three thirty three or three thirty eight. Um, I forget which I forget which for the World Series, um, and just yeah, no, I think no one expected him to be sort of the Dodgers guy to show up for the series, but he did, and that was awesome. Uh, the only other person I might put in that category would be Clayton Kershaw. Um, he, he of course didn't do so well in his second start, but his first start was lights out and he did very well in relief in game seven. So I think if, if we're doing this imaginary where, uh, the Dodgers come away with a one zero win in game seven, and it's because in part Kershaw, uh, held them to no runs the second and third times through the lineup. I think Kershaw looks pretty good for that MVP award. And it's, it's also sort of a heartwarming story because it, this guy's tried to, tried to make it through many, many a postseason before, and he's never been able to quite do it. Um, so that'd be kind of cool, but I think I will go with Jock Peterson just because of the, the week, uh, game five that Kershaw had, um, giving up, I think it was six earned runs in that outing. Um, but yeah, that's my thought on that. I, I got to pick Jock Peterson too, because way back in late March, I might've done a fantasy baseball draft where I drafted Jock Peterson and promptly dropped him a month and a half later because he was doing awful. As you all know, I performed miserably in that fantasy baseball league, but at the same time, I felt like it was a little bit of redemption that maybe oh, for in sure. March I knew something. <laughs> yeah, no, you, I think you keyed in on his talent and he just didn't realize it until, until the world series. So <laughs> exactly. It's, it's not the general manager's fault when the players don't perform. My job is oh, to scout them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of, general managers and managers let's talk about dave roberts dodgers manager uh so game seven uh he starts you darvish and darvish did not do well at all in his first start in the world series so do you think that dave roberts made a mistake in starting darvish in game seven now the background on this uh he didn't do well his first game in the world series i don't have his stats from the first game right in front of me i don't know if you do but um everyone knew kershaw was going to pitch at some point in this game right he was he was on short rest because he just pitched game five uh, several days before, but everyone knew he was going to come in at some point because this is not a time to have your your iffy starter go through seven innings, right? This is a time to use everyone and anyone you can to get through the innings. So everyone knew Kershaw was going to pitch. So why not start Kershaw? Why not make sure you're having Kershaw pitch when it matters? And maybe if you start Kershaw, he doesn't give up uh, five runs in two innings like Darvish did. So do you think this is a mistaken call by Roberts or is this just looking at it with hindsight and saying just because it, it happens not work out, it was a bad decision. Man, so I'm I'm really torn on this Z. As I, as I was going back and forth, so there's there's a quote from uh, 
Clayton Kershaw actually uh, before Game Seven, where uh, I guess he went to Dave Roberts and talked about like I'm I'm your guy, I'm ready to go. And supposedly Dave Roberts came back to him and said, I want you to have the ball for the final out of Game Seven. So kind of at face value, I, I kind of took a step back with, well, are we are we kind of putting the cart before the horse and assuming that this is going to work out and Clayton Kershaw can finally have his hero's moment, where where they may be getting a little too uh, too fancy with this. I I don't know. But at, at the same time, looking at how you Darvish performed, I I actually don't hate the decision by Dave Roberts to start him. So you go back to when they brought in you Darvish back midseason uh, onto the Dodger team, a Dodger team who, aside from Rich Hill and Clayton Kershaw, I think you can argue didn't really have uh, a solid number three. As you all know, in the playoffs, you, you need at least two workhorses, one guy to, to really get you through the, the heart of the series. Uh, and then you can kind of start messing around with the, with the, the bullpen and the starters and who it's going to be. Uh, but the, the Dodgers really didn't have that. The, the Dodgers had a good backside of the bullpen, but no middle middle relief to really bail them out. So they brought in you Darvish specifically to, to get him through October. So I don't hate the fact that they are willing to go to the guy who they paid tons of money for, who historically had performed uh, pretty well in the playoffs, I'd say. Not not lights out by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but a guy who had demonstrated that he was capable. So I, I think the Udarvis issues are not necessarily, <coughs> excuse me, performance-based, but I, I jumped on ESPN Radio in the middle of Game 7 uh, as I was driving around, and Aaron Boone, Boone brought up an interesting point that there is something in you Darvish's delivery that the Astros were really keying in on, unlike any other pitcher in that Dodger rotation or the Dodger bullpen, for that matter. Uh, and Aaron Boone was saying possibly you Darvish is tipping his pitches. Uh, remember, you Darvish has been around the league for a while. Uh, a lot of these guys on Dodger teams uh, were journeymen before about two years ago. Uh, so maybe you Darvish was doing something that... Uh, I, th I think you could argue that the Dodgers bench coach and, and pitching coaches weren't able to pick up on. But overall, it wasn't necessarily an issue with you, Darvish himself. It was an issue with his mechanics and fundamentals that, yes, the pitching coach absolutely should have caught. But I really don't blame uh, the Dodger management for sticking with a guy who they paid a heck of a lot of money for uh, to bail him out. I think the only argument you can make uh, is, is going back to what you said, where if Clayton Kershaw is going to pitch, why not put him out there to, to start the game? Uh, and that's where I wonder if if the Dodgers were, were getting a little too fancy with it and, and having a little too much fun and trying to kind of create the moment before getting to the moment. But uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I'm kind of agnostic on this decision, honestly. I don't think it's a bad decision. I don't think it's an indefensible decision. Uh, and I, I do think it could have gone either way. So Roberts only had that one other data point to work with from Game 3 when Darvish had his start. And it did not go well. His stat line from Game 3, um, let me see. Yeah, okay, so 1.2 innings pitched, uh, six hits, four runs allowed, no strikeouts, one walk. Um, so not great, right? <laughs> Didn't make it even through two <laughs> innings. Uh, and then he comes into game seven, 1.2 innings pitched again, uh, three hits allowed, five runs, four of them earned. So um, I think really what this is is it's just kind of bad luck on Darvish's part. Uh, and I think it could have happened to any any of their pitchers. Uh, the, t the pitch tipping possibility is interesting. I had heard about that before, and that I'm sort of curious. But, I mean, the sequence of events in Game 7 and uh, for Darvish, uh, Springer doubled, Bregman reaches on an error, so Springer scores. So that was the un unearned run that Darvish sur surrendered. Um, and then uh, Altuve grounds out because Bregman had stolen uh, third base before he reached second on the error. Uh, Bregman scored, so... 
again, I mean, how much of that can we pin on on Darvish, right? Yeah. Um, and then, so the, the, at, the, at that point, the score is two zip. And then in the second inning, uh, he walks Brian McCann. Uh, Marwin Gonzalez doubles to right field, so that's not good. Um, McCann goes to third. So at this point, no one's scored. Uh, and then Josh Reddick grounds out. No one scores. Lance McCullers grounds out. McCann scores. And then, hello, George Springer, who we already talked about being awesome, hits a home run. And then the, the score is five zip. So, I mean, that sequence of events makes me think this isn't actually a terrible pitching performance. This is a, a series of, of unfortunate events for Darvish. And, and so, let's let's not forget, I mean, we, we look at a whole series, of course, but in Game 7, the Dodgers left 10 guys on base. Uh, they, they did have that bases-loaded jam in, in the bottom of the second where they, yeah. they could have bailed you Darvish out. Maybe he doesn't get the win. Maybe it's still iffy going along. But I, I totally agree that that he certainly didn't do himself any favors, but the other eight guys on the field didn't really uphold their end of the bargain either. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. I've, I've really felt bad for Darvish watching this. And this guy has had a tough postseason because, uh, in part because of the, uh, uh, the Yuli Gurriel controversy. And he was, of course, the, one of the, he was the target of, of Gurriel's gesture. And so he was the center of this controversy and he didn't want to be, I mean, when he was interviewed about this, he basically said, uh, you know, I wasn't offended. We should move on. And, um, I think he had a lot of attention that he didn't want, and then to go out this way in Game Seven, not making it through the second inning, it just kind of a rough, rough spot. So I'm hoping for a strong 2018 for you, Darvish. Me, me too, me too. Uh, one more question on this, and then let's talk some college football. But uh, there were a lot of home runs in baseball this year. That's uh, that goes without saying. Uh, in the regular season, we had more home runs uh, than we've ever had before in any season. Uh, I'm not sure how the postseason stacks historically, but I do have the data from the last five years. 104 home runs this postseason, 71 last postseason, 91 the year before that, uh, only 57 in 2014 and 55 in 2013. So we're on a we're on a pretty pretty steep, aggressively uphill climb with this home run count. Does it make does it make the postseason better in your eyes? Is it more fun when we have more long balls and we have ridiculous win probability swings like we had in game five where we had a 13 12 you know 25 total points scored matchup where we had like five different lead changes and all this and that's all kind of aided by the the home run ball so does it make for better baseball in your opinion or does the loss of the sort of small ball that a lot of us like to see uh, mean that we lose out on something there so I think it really comes down to what, what kind of baseball do we want going forward? So you look at the the late 90s, early 2000s, the steroid era, where, where we could easily have seen a game like we saw game five three times a week out of, out of six games, right? Um, and then we kind of hit the, the mid-2000s and the late 2000s where all of a sudden we're seeing three two games. Uh, we're seeing them alter the the height of the pitcher's mound. We're seeing all these different factors change. Uh, and we get into this small ball era where you see the, the World Series of 08, 09, 10, 11, 12, uh, where they were not high-scoring games. Uh, and, and I think if you look at viewership, which absolutely is not what we should determine the quality of the sport by, but viewership drops significantly. I, I don't think 13, 12 baseball games are the solution we want. But at the same time, people want to watch offense. It doesn't matter what the sport is. It doesn't matter if it's football, basketball, hockey, baseball. People want to see people score. Uh, unless Justin Verlander and Clayton Kershaw are out there throwing no-hitters, perfect games, uh, or we're seeing phenomenal plays to keep them low scoring, people want to see runners on base. 
space and things happening. Either way, in October, it's going to be a three and a half hour game, unless it's game five, and then it's going to be a five and a half hour game. Uh, but overall, I I think the long ball uh, is is going to do good things for our sport. Obviously, you and I are huge baseball fans, so we're a little biased. I feel the baseball purist in me squirming a little as I'm saying this and trying to trying to pull the words back in my mouth. But overall, it, it makes it more fun. It, it brings in more people to watch the game. I feel like it gives us more to talk about, that a dominant pitching performance is something beautiful to watch. But honestly, I don't even want to watch a dominant pitching performance all seven games. I want to watch a game where there's stolen bases. I want to see plays at the plate. I want to see doubles in the gap. I, I want to see all this. So I think the long ball... Um, might detract a little from the statistics and the the beauty of the double switch and, and all of those things but overall i'm i'm a fan of the, of the long ball right now i'm a fan of, of the big fly yeah i am too and and i'm sort of surprising myself by this stance because i'm a huge fan of small ball i mean there is a a large push among sabermetricians in the past few years to publish literature and and disseminate this that says the bunt doesn't actually work and the the math shows that in fact the bunt doesn't really make sense most of the time it's tried um but i like bunts i like steals i like uh i like the sort of gamesmanship i like suicide squeezes those are a ton of fun and and all that is stuff that you do less if you're relying on the long ball but with that said what i like about the current fly ball revolution if we can call it that is that we're seeing uh not the type of barry bonds 73 home run campaigns or mark mcguire or sammy sosa figures that we saw in the steroid era but rather we're seeing everyone be able to hit 25 home runs. And that, I think, that sort of more widely disseminated uh, skill that's that's available to everyone and everyone sort of benefits equally from this uh, is, is a lot more fun to watch because the, the talent's more equally distributed. And in, in some ways, anything can happen, and we don't have these crazy outlier uh, players, maybe with the exception of, like, Judge and Stanton, um, who, are, who are doing crazy things on a regular basis yeah couldn't couldn't agree more I, I think it's funny that no matter what we've talked about this postseason or this season it's always coming back to to Aaron Judge Jose Altuve and I mean look look at what these guys are doing that this this is the future of the sport I I don't think we think of the, the long ball necessarily with just Aaron Judge obviously we look at the guys like Mike Trout Bryce Harper but the the young guys are, are able to put the ball in play and we know I mean, granted, science could be advancing a lot quicker than we're tracking on, but I think that we know that these guys are clean and these guys are just getting better at physically preparing themselves and making sure that they, they're prepped mentally and physically for the game. And it's it's a lot of fun. that The younger generation is, is making a huge difference uh, in, in terms of the, the audience and the, the excitement that they're bringing to the game. This, this, this is a lot of fun. I mean, look at the last two postseasons. Obviously, they've been helped out by the fact that the Cubs were in the playoffs. Uh, they've been helped out by the fact that L. LA is a huge market who hasn't won since 88. Uh, they're helped out by the fact that Houston used to lose what felt like 100 games every season. I know it wasn't always that bad, but uh, overall, it's it's the young guys. It's the fact that that even the casual baseball fan can turn it on and be interested. Yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. I'm also optimistic because baseball is very easy to tweak compared to other sports. By that, I mean you can raise or lower the pitcher's mound, which has been done in the past. You can move it closer or farther from the plate, which has been done in the past. You can expand outfields just a little bit and move fences five five feet back. And over the course of a 162-game season, that makes a big difference because a lot of balls that would have been gone are no longer gone. So um, I think it'll be pretty easy for baseball to, to find a sweet spot. And this is not even mentioning anything about the physics of the actual ball. And there's been a lot of controversy 
maybe manufactured controversy, but a lot of discussion this season about whether or not the ball is juiced, whether or not it has the same sort of elasticity that it has in the past, and maybe its new properties are making it easier to, to go yard with it. But it's easy to change those things and sort of arrive at a sweet spot that's that's really good for players and fans. So I'm excited to see what, what the future holds for baseball. Same. But with that said about baseball, I think we've we've covered a lot of the World Series, and we'll do a lot a lot more offseason stuff and uh, eventually division preview, previews for the, the next baseball season. We're in what I call the dark ages as a baseball fan. Um, but there's a lot to talk about with college football, so let's transition to that. Perfect. Well, as, as we already talked about, it was kind of a rough weekend for those of us who are kind of teetering uh, on the one-loss circuit. Uh, obviously, a really bad weekend if you're a Big Ten fan. With uh, Overall, I think you can argue that the, the Big Ten is down, uh, but I found myself last night as I was you know, sobbing into into my beer that was, of course, frozen because I live in North Dakota. Um, yes. But uh, I'm sitting there thinking kind of what's what's tomorrow going to look like with the new AP rankings. Then on Tuesday, we'll get the new college football preview um, that that I think overall this this was kind of uh, an elimination Saturday in a lot of ways. Obviously, your Nittany Lions are out. My Hokies are out. The Buckeyes are out. Um, but kind of some of the the guys who we honestly thought were pretenders, I think absolutely made themselves into actual contenders. So no better way to start with it. But Zach, give me your give me your top six on this. Give me your your first four in and your first two out. We'll almost do it college basketball uh, bracketology style. Yeah. So uh, in the college football playoff rankings last week, the top six were uh, Georgia. Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, Oklahoma, Ohio State. I got to think with wins uh, this week, all four stay there, right? So Georgia, Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson. And Georgia's ahead of Alabama because of strength of schedule. I think that remains the same this week. Uh, And then I got to think Oklahoma, Ohio State, and Penn State will drop. Um, Ohio State and Penn State, obviously, because they lost. Um, Oklahoma won, but... Not in very convincing fashion, in my opinion, because it, it was basically a defenseless game. I think the score was 62-52 against the, the Sooners. I mean, against yeah, the, let's, uh, the Cowboys, Oklahoma State. Let's let's dissect that for a second. Do you think winning against... I mean, don't don't forget, this was the number 11 team at number 11 with, with Oklahoma State. Bedlam, it's a rivalry game. Does that win? Obviously, a loss hurts you more than a win will ever. But d- does that win almost hurt Oklahoma more than it helps them? The fact that they went to Bedlam, they got the win, uh, they won by 10 points. Does does this one kind of hurt them? I, I think they could kind of slide, but, but what are you feeling on that one? Yeah, I'm, I'm expecting them to slide. I, I would say one spot. I think that uh, who's going to move up ahead of them is actually going to be TCU uh, after stomping on UT. So I'm expecting to see Georgia, Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, TCU, Oklahoma, uh, and then probably Wisconsin right behind Oklahoma. But that's that's just my impression based on that. Wisconsin's 9-0 uh, in the, uh, in the uh, on their season. They're obviously undefeated in the Big Ten as well. And uh, they just stomped on Indiana, and they had basically the same margin of victory that Penn State and Ohio State had against Indiana uh, this season earlier. So Wisconsin's looking real. And I, I mean, I don't think the Oklahoma state win will hurt Oklahoma that much if at all. And I think the college football playoff committee would have trouble moving them down more than one spot, but I do think TCU has been sneaky good and, uh, they gave up seven points to UT. So they're looking like the real deal. Uh, it's a lot harder to give up only seven points than it is to give up 52 and then just have a, a shootout that Oklahoma did, uh, at Oklahoma state. So what do you think? 
So I'm I'm going to disagree with you on TCU. I think, yes, they are competitive. I actually still have TCU as my number eight, so I still have them way down. And that might be more so the fact that I'm just not watching a lot of TCU games, that I'm catching more highlights. It's kind of my equivalent of the Pac-12 after dark. Obviously, I live in the, the western yeah. portion of the central time zone, so I catch a few more Pac-12 games than, than your average ACC fan does, which I don't think anyone on the podcast is surprised that I'm an ACC homer. But overall, I have – so I'm actually going to disagree with the uh, – playoff committee on number one i still think it's alabama and i know that georgia has the better strength of schedule i think georgia's wins have been more convincing uh in that they're playing the tougher team but i actually still like the fact that we are rewarding alabama uh for consistently playing tough teams even if those teams are not turning out to be as tough as we expected so i got alabama's number one i got georgia number two and obviously that's going to slide a lot given both get to the SEC championship game. I don't think Alabama's guaranteed it, but Georgia is guaranteed to be in Atlanta. So that, that'll shift. I don't think that one matters too much right now. Uh, I actually have Clemson as number three. I have Notre Dame as my number four. Oklahoma is number five. Wisconsin is six. Miami is seven. I know I only asked you for six, so I'm cheating. Uh, and then I have TCU number eight, just because we talked about it. I think it was surprising. Um, how well Notre Dame did yesterday. So I know they play Wake Forest. Wake Forest lost one of their great freshman wide receivers to an abdominal injury for the season. But that Wake Forest defense is legit. Uh, I thought that Notre Dame offense was better than I expected. Uh, and that's what kind of pivoted them into that that number four spot for me. It, it hurts my heart again, just like when we talked about baseball, to talk about Notre Dame number four, when they really haven't done anything except lose to Georgia, it feels right. like. Right. But overall, I think, I think Notre Dame is legit. And I also think there's going to be a little gamesmanship between the college football playoff uh, with the, the matchup coming this weekend between Notre Dame and Miami in Coral Gables this weekend with kind of the Catholics versus convicts uh, matchup coming. Uh, I, I think that that we're going to look at at that game kind of being the defining moment here for for the ACC and Notre Dame going forward. Notre Dame being kind of a pseudo member of the ACC. Obviously, they play independent in football, uh, but they have to play ACC opponents based on them belonging to the ACC for basketball. So, I, I think Notre Dame number four and Miami as my number seven are my two biggest surprises. Um, maybe a little bit is I want to root for Miami just because they embarrassed my Hokies so badly last night. Uh, but overall, uh, I think I think we're looking at no Big Ten team outside of Wisconsin having any remote shot at these playoffs whatsoever for the rest of the season. I think... I, you know that I was I was rooting for Penn State. I thought Penn State was going to be a solid one-loss team, and they would occupy that number four position for the rest of the year. But I, I think that they're going to be hoping for a New Year's Six Bowl right now, and I, I think that's looking kind of iffy. I did like, not to get off on a tangent, just something that I really want to point out um, is, uh, do you watch James Franklin as he's coming off the field yesterday, what he did? No, I did not. What did he do? So it's it's a miserable game. They have their three-and-a-half-hour rain delay. They lose in heartbreaking fashion. Penn State, uh, I wouldn't say devastated. It wasn't like the Ohio State finish, but those those guys are clearly pretty down. And yeah, a couple guys start walking towards the locker room, and James Franklin, no kidding, sprints to the tunnel and starts yelling at his guys to go back, shake hands, and to lose with class. And and that's something that uh, I know that that we we try to to pump up all these college footballs to be microcosms of of life and drama and whatever it wants to be. But I love seeing a coach who's going to take that stuff seriously and acknowledge the fact that yeah we we laid an egg in this one. There is no way Michigan State should have kept up with them like they did. But we are we're not going to be those guys. And I think you can look at a lot of teams in college football who that coach doesn't care 
what those players are doing as they're walking off the field. And I love the fact that James Franklin is not only telling his guys to lose with class, but he is sprinting to go yell at them to lose with class. And and granted, I'm I'm not the guy who yelled at, so you could you could ask him how he feels about it. But man, I I like the direction of that program and what they're doing. Yeah, I think there are a lot of reasons to be a Penn State fan now, and I have a lot of respect for James Franklin and what he's doing there. I got a little nervous when there was there was a talk of James Franklin going to A&M, and he, he squashed those rumors pretty, pretty quickly, but he's done a lot to turn the culture around, and I, too, was thinking that they were at most a one-loss team, was not at all expecting them to lose to Michigan State, but Michigan State's defense, known for being sneaky good, and, and so at, at, at the same uh, time I'm not super surprised that they lost but it was a tough one to watch especially with the delay just kind of a funky game all around I do I, I want to take issue with your I just want to challenge you on your Alabama ranking so you really think this team deserves a number one ranking from the the CFP I mean they played LSU yesterday the same LSU that lost to Troy uh, the same LSU that beat Florida by one point and Alabama only beat them by two touchdowns Georgia, on the other hand, already beaten Notre Dame, which is currently uh, number three in the rankings, and uh, shut out Tennessee. I think it was like 42-0 to zero or something. So Georgia's just winning in more convincing fashion in my mind. And I'm not necessarily saying that they're the better team. I think in a head-to-head matchup, Alabama wins. But uh, they've, they've outplayed Alabama to this point in the season, I think. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going with the college football playoff committee on this one. So... You, you make great points. You always do, my friend. But here's here's what I don't like. So I, I don't like that we are getting in the business right now of um, size of wins. So that is something that used to be a huge issue with the AP rankings. And that's part of the reason we went to the BCS system overall, that BCS was obviously very flawed. Every system we ever come up with is going to be flawed. But we seem to really reward teams on how much they beat up on the weaker teams, which you got to win. Winning is the most important thing. But why does it really matter that they're putting up 42 points on a Butch Davis team who I don't think even took the field that day? Uh, why why are we always looking to, to make sure that you stomp on your opponent instead of just beating them? That was something that so so granted uh i am really close and biased to the source but i i think virginia tech was pretty over inflated because the fact that they were able to put up 30 points on uh duke that they're putting up 50 points on unc that everyone's saying this team is so dominant this team is doing fantastic things i i think that we're we're looking at the final score so much in college football right now instead of watching the way they win that just uh for me watching the way alabama plays has been more convincing than georgia but i'll i'll tell you that the running backs on both alabama and georgia are fantastic uh and an alabama versus georgia game i think will be the best game of the college football season here in the sec championship coming up but uh, at the end of the day, I think just the way Alabama plays right now is more convincing to me that they deserve another national title uh, than Georgia does. And maybe this was just the college football playoff trying to give Nick Saban the ammunition he needed to pump up his players because Nick Saban loves to pick on one little thing and run with it to make his players mad. Uh, but overall, I, I still think they're the more convincing team uh, right now. But you're right, the strength of schedule is absolutely in Georgia's favor. So I, I think we're going to have to, uh, I don't even want to say agree to disagree because we're not really agreeing on this one. But I, I respect your opinion on that. Well, I guess we'll have to see. The rankings come out on Tuesday. We'll have to see uh, if, if we agree. We can talk about it next week, too, whether or not we think the CFP committee got it right. So 
So the CFP committee is they've they've got some tough decisions. I, I don't even want to say I don't want to be in their shoes because I would give my right hand to be in their shoes. That's like the coolest job in the world. But um, it's it's a weird season going on. They they've got some some tough calls, uh, especially with how few unbeaten's remain. Um, Obviously, we're, we're going to have a one-loss team in there somewhere. We've, we've had this the past couple of years. This isn't anything new. But say the wheels really start coming off this season um, and we, we start looking at some solid two-loss teams. I don't think any two-loss team is coming out of the Big Ten. I think Ohio State and Penn State were the last chances there. Um, so I think it's it's kind of Wisconsin going undefeated or bust. Um, but I think out of the SEC or the ACC, uh, this this could get pretty interesting here with a with a two loss team. So say um, that Clemson makes it to the ACC championship, Miami wins out, so Miami beats Notre Dame, gets in close, and Miami perhaps beats Clemson going down the line. Or we start throwing in a Miami loss here, and Clemson is now looking at uh, a two loss team. Uh, I think Clemson as a two loss team uh, could have some some kind of footing uh, to to get into that college football playoff. It's really all about when they're having that second loss. But do you think we have any chance of a two loss team making the college football playoff this year? Yeah, I mean. I, I do. I think, let's see, if we can identify the most likely candidates, I think you did Clemson. Um, Notre Dame, I see, because Notre Dame's already had to claw back from their first loss and uh, against Georgia. And if Notre Dame wins again or loses again a second time, I think they're out of the running. Um, Oklahoma, I think the committee's already iffy on Oklahoma, which is why they're outside the top four now. So I think if they lose again, they're out. Um so I don't know. I think it'd be I think it'd be tough to see. We're at least gonna see, like you said, at least one one loss team. I mean, in terms of undefeateds remaining, there's only Alabama, Georgia, Wisconsin, Miami, and then and then UCF, right? And yes. UCF's UCF's an interesting one because they're sitting on the outside in right now. Last ranking was um, what was their CFP ranking? Do you remember what their what the most recent is? Is it 18 or 16 or something? Uh, yeah, high teens. Let me let me pull it up for you real quick. So I don't know. I'm having trouble envisioning a scenario. I guess is the is the long winded answer to your question. I'm having trouble envisioning a scenario in which there is a two loss team that ends up in the playoff. So so let's let's look at it this way. So Auburn is on the up and up. I think you could argue, and maybe this is maybe this was me trying to get ahead of myself with my last answer. Um, Auburn's on the up and up. I think Auburn will be a uh, top eight team come the end of the season. I don't think they're making the SEC championship solely because they play in Alabama's division. Uh, right. But I think I think Auburn will be sitting probably at seven or eight. Um, I think Alabama is still sitting at one or two, uh, depending on your perspective. Agreed. Uh, say, say the Iron Bowl goes like Iron Bulls always do, uh, and Auburn wins that one in a squeaker. And so you got an Alabama team losing to the number eight team is going to force them to drop a little, uh, but probably not a ton. Uh, what if what if Alabama, granted, two back-to-back losses is pretty much the nail in the coffin, but in the SEC between Alabama and Georgia, I, I could see either of these teams um, having a close loss and then surviving the SEC championship and maybe maybe even losing the SEC championship and still having a a good complaint as to why they belong in the playoff. I mean, the the playoff committee, I think, uh, kind of screwed up last year and put in Ohio State in. I think everyone can agree on that. A lot of hindsight is telling us they did based on how Ohio State performed. But at the same time, they kind of gave themselves a window uh, that they, they have a little flexibility here not just in the head-to-head matchups, but the overall body of work that I think the SEC or the ACC could absolutely produce a two-loss team. Yeah, I mean, so the Auburn point's a good one. I think maybe that's the most likely and one 
when I say likely, I don't actually mean likely, but I mean, if Auburn were to, cause they play Georgia this week, right? So if Auburn were to go to Georgia, uh, or I guess they're playing in Auburn, I think if they were to play Georgia and win, they would still have two losses, obviously, but they'd be eight and two. And then if they were to play Alabama and squeak out a win there, they'd still be a two loss team. But if, if they took down Georgia and Bama, I think that you almost have to put them in the CFP, right? So I, maybe, I maybe so. in that scenario. Yeah. I can see that happening. I'm having trouble seeing another scenario in which it happens unless we can come up with some sort of crazy uh, Big Ten scenario where Ohio State wins out in like 50-point shutouts the rest of the season and then uh, beats Wisconsin in the Big Ten championship game. I don't know. Uh, but I'm having trouble seeing another scenario in which a two-loss team makes it. What's what's going to be the upheaval this year if the Big Ten is left out of the college football playoff, which I think Wisconsin is their last hope. I don't think there's anything left besides Wisconsin for the Big Ten right now in the playoff. I think New Year's Six, there's some very legitimate contenders for that. But we're, we're looking at a no Big Ten college football playoff. I think we're very strongly looking at a no West Coast representation whatsoever in the college football playoff that they all just seem to be beating up on each other. Yep. That I, we, we talked about a few weeks ago that we could look at a big reorg here. But I think the fact that we could leave out two of the Power Five conferences here very soon is is going to completely grenade this entire process again, which I think is a good thing. But yeah, I think it is because we need to move to an eighteen playoff, and if if that's the conversation that comes out of this, then good because as it is now, only opening it to four teams that a committee decides are worthy is just not working. It's, it's not good for the fan base. It's not good for the game. And if we get to an eighteen playoff sooner, I'm all for it. Agreed. Agreed. Well, so we, we talked about two lost teams, but uh, probably worth noting that there are some teams out there really struggling. As you yes. and I have, have mentioned, Tennessee is looking especially awful. Um, I think we're all in agreement that Butch Davis is on his way out, but that position isn't getting nearly the attention uh, that Florida is. That I don't think it mattered what broadcast you were watching yesterday, and granted, I watched a lot of broadcasts. Everyone is talking about this Florida job. I'm getting nervous because I hear my boy Justin Fuente getting brought up in every one of these conversations. I don't think he's a legitimate candidate for the Florida job, but I I think coaching the Florida Gators based on their history, based on some of their superstars who have come out, um, is is a tough gig, but one that if you can figure out, it's it's your ticket to, to college football glory. Um, so based on the 26 different candidates I've heard mentioned, What's what's your prediction or, or who who do you think could be a legitimate contender for this Florida job? Uh, so I am actually really curious and I haven't seen him mentioned uh, many, many places at all. But I'm really curious about the possibility of Chip Kelly going to Florida because this is a guy who ran a very successful program offense first at Oregon, obviously. He, he obviously has a good football mind, even if he doesn't quite get chemistry of an NFL locker room, because he went to, to Philly and then got ran out of town there after a few seasons. So um, he's still in football. He's a, is a commentator right now. And I think it should be, it'd be interesting, and I think it'd be, it'd be worth the phone call if the Florida AD picked up the phone and called Chip, Chip Kelly to just gauge his interest, get him down, uh, run through the interview process. Uh, but that's, that's kind of who I'd like to see, because I liked watching Chip Kelly when he was at Oregon, and I'd like to see him back in college football. What about you? Oh, and actually, just one more thing on the Justin Fuente point I was going to say. I, I, I don't think you need to be too nervous. I don't think Fuente is going to do that because you end up looking like Lane Kiffin, right, just leaving for the next great opportunity. And he's already in a program, a storied program at Virginia Tech, and he has an opportunity to rebuild it, and he's off to a great start now. So why would he want to throw that all the way, all away and start somewhere else? 
Um, I you mean, had to bring up Lane Kiffin, didn't you? You had answer, to bring up right? Lane Kiffin. <laughs> well, I was going to make a Lane Kiffin joke, too, about the Tennessee vacancy. I was going to say, is it time for a return? <laughs> <laughs> oh, couldn't agree more. And I, and I agree on your Justin Fuente point. I think he's, he's too invested in that program right now. But I really like what you had to say about Chip Kelly. He's one who I hadn't looked at too much. But the, the second you said it, it, it kind of makes perfect sense. One, based on the fact that he's virtually unemployed right now, that you know he's losing his mind on Saturdays oh, sitting yeah. in the studio. <laughs> um, which, don't forget, is the exact same thing that happened to Urban Meyer once upon a time. Is He did that whole, I'm going to take a year off from Florida uh, and go commentate. And he did that for a year and had signed with Ohio state before bowl season had started. So I, I think that's a great point. I think the bigger point though, is the Florida fans who are tough fans to appease want an offense. They, they know that they can, they can make it work with defense, but the Florida fans want an offense. And that's yeah. what this Florida team has really been missing. Even with these sec championships over the past past two years i mean don't forget last year they were playing in the sec title game the year before they played in the sec title game that that overall it's ridiculous they ran a guy out of town who'd taken them to the championship game two of the last three years with the third year not even halfway over um but i, I think you're right the offense is is the biggest key um i think that who we need to kind of keep an eye on for in this is dan mullen so dan mullen who actually was the offensive coordinator for urban meyer once upon a time at Florida when they won those championships. So he's got the Tim Tebow connection. He's got the offensive ability. Going back to Urban Meyer, who Florida fans were not happy when he left, but overall that is kind of a, a glory time in Florida history. I think I think he's got that. And I think Dan Mullen is about done with where he is in the SEC. That uh, going up against Alabama every week when he doesn't have the recruiting, I'm sorry, not every week, every year when he doesn't have the recruiting uh, that Alabama's getting, that Auburn's getting. Um, I, I think he's he's kind of starting to, to run out of time and it's getting a little stale there. I think you could almost compare it to the Georgia situation where Mark Rick, everyone knows, was a great coach. Georgia got very, very stale with Mark Rick. Uh, he goes to Miami. Miami, obviously, on the up and up, doing great things. Uh, and and don't forget Georgia, who is number one right now in the college football ranking. That yeah. uh, They, they kind of ran him out of town because it was just old. So I think Dan Mullen makes perfect sense to go to Florida. The only issue is you're kind of sticking with the SEC, which going across the SEC is a dangerous game, especially as you're playing the recruit game. Um, I think Dino Babers out of Syracuse, and again, maybe it's just because I'm an ACC guy, uh, I think his win over Clemson kind of put him back on the map, much like we've seen coaches do over the past couple of years that you have that one signature win, and all of a sudden you're who we're, we're keying in on. Uh, I think Dino Babers has an offense in Syracuse, he certainly doesn't have a defense, uh, but he has an offense who can play. Uh, and then I also like Scott Frost coming out of UCF, which how happy would the Florida fans be to pull a guy who's who's got good college football roots uh, playing at Nebraska to pluck him out of a rival – not really a rival, but another Florida school right. to bring you back to glory. I think in so many ways they would love that and it would it'd make them happy. So Scott Frost putting up 51 points per game. At UCF, I mean that's that's exactly what they're asking for. He's going to come cheaper than Chip Kelly will. That's true. Uh, yeah, without as much of the drama, uh, you would know this better than I. I would go back to your Eagles that's fandom, right. but Chip Kelly ruffles a lot of feathers when he, he comes does. into a program. So there's there's a little drama associated with him. I I like Scott Frost and I like Dan Mullen honestly going to that job, but oh I this this is a tough gig i mean it's it's kind of like being going back to our our podcast a couple of weeks ago about being the manager of the nationals i don't know why you really want the job right now because 
the expectations are so high and what you're dealing with is is kind of a, a little bit of a toxic situation right now. Yeah, that's totally true. Although I have to say for, I don't know, the right price, $5 million a year, I would be able to I'll be able to take on any of those expectations and I would certainly not meet, I would not meet or exceed any of them, but uh, I'd be willing to take those on and completely fail to meet them if you'd pay me five million a year. So I can see why I'd be attractive to a few people. <laughs> Dude, I'll, I'll undercut you. I'll do it for a million. <laughs> oh man, I'm out of a job now. It's a, it's a doggy dog world, my friend. So, so you brought up Lane Kiffin and, and you know, for some reason, I love to hate on Lane Kiffin. Um, and, and I follow him on Twitter pretty, uh, pretty devoutly at this point that it seems that every time he tweets, I'm seeing it. And he's been been pretty active on Twitter lately too. He has, did, did you see this whole drama that, uh, his FAU team who again, won again this week, um, took a late safety that then Lane Kiffin tweeted, uh, he didn't want to, uh, he didn't want to cover, uh, to, to screw over all the guys in Vegas. Did you see that tweet? Yeah, no, I totally did. (laughs) So, so he's, he's talking about rat poison. He's, he's talking back at what seems like everyone who has a Twitter, which he hasn't tweeted back at me yet. So clearly he's not that legit, but, um, just, just for fun, is there a better Twitter out there or Twitter handle to be following the Lane Kiffin right now in college football? Oh man. Uh, I would say I'm partial to faux Polini, which is uh, a fake parody account for Bo Polini. Uh, the uh, the handle is just F A U X Polini, and uh, and it's pretty hilarious. Let me see if I can uh, pull up faux Polini and give you a give you a little sample of some of the tweets here. These uh these these fake accounts truly make my day. You got you got Peyton's head, which is a favorite of mine. Uh, faux Polini is is a good one I'd forgotten about. I I couldn't agree more. There's there, there's some good ones out there, especially in, in college football. Oh, yeah, totally. I would say, uh, let me give you an example. Um, okay, great. So punching someone in the face is a penalty now. <laughs> <laughs> Referring was, to the Bengals game, I assume? Yeah, exactly. Uh, also, <laughs> he uh, tweeted at the Pope and said, what's with the lightning today in the uh, Penn State, Michigan State delay? <laughs> so, uh, or just should have kicked it a little more to the right. <laughs> Those types of things, uh, really good football knowledge from Fopolini. So that's my that's my Twitter recommend for the day. Fopolini. Oh, well, well, you went on that one. I'll stick to watching Lane Kiffin just try to troll the world. But at the end of the day, he's trolling the world from FAU. So maybe we're still trolling him as the world. But hey, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe he's two more trolled. weeks. Still Tennessee rumors. Who knows? Butch Davis can't have more than two weeks left there. Lane Kiffin to Tennessee. We're, we're calling it now. You heard it first on Third String Pod. Oh, love it. Love it. Hashtag it. What are, you, what are you looking forward to this week? we got some things coming up before we leave. Anything you're looking forward to? Um, let's see. I'm looking forward to the, the beginning of the baseball offseason. Obviously, it's already started since the World Series ended, but uh, keeping an eye on all the hot stove rumors since baseball is my number one sport, seeing who's going where, and that's always a fun thing to pay attention to. We've got a, a lot of big games coming up this weekend in college football that I am looking at closely. And then I've just got to say I'm really excited about my Eagles starting off 8-1. and one. Uh, coming up on a bye week, so they're not playing this weekend, but they're going to have time to rest and refit before facing off against the Cowboys. How about you? Uh, yes, looking forward to hot stove. Obviously, looking forward to uh, to more college football and all that goodness. But man, it's with it being the the dark times as you called them. I'm looking forward to getting one more sport who plays more than just one day a week. So 
I'm excited for college basketball to get back in. And I'm a, I'm an ACC homer, as I've probably said about 15 times on this podcast. So next time you'll have to you'll have to charge me a dollar. But I'm looking forward to college basketball getting started. I think there are going to be some fantastic matchups this weekend. Uh, and watching kind of the, the Michigan States, the Kansas, the Dukes of the world start start making it interesting. There's going to be no Rick Pitino, which is going to make for an interesting year. That's right. Yeah. I think Louisville's a days season. Yeah. I think Louisville is in trouble uh, just with how many recruits they lost and the state of their program. But there's six or seven programs across college basketball who are always legitimate, who right now have the FBI doing investigations in their offices. So it'll be an interesting college basketball season, hopefully not too much drama, but I'm, I'm excited to, to have something to watch on a Wednesday night besides uh, the voice. Yeah, I uh, totally agree with that. Uh, a few things that I'll be watching uh, Duke. I want to see if they're really worth this number one preseason ranking that they've earned. Uh, Grayson Allen coming back. I want to see if he's a little more mature of a player than he was last year. Uh, and apart from Grayson, they've pretty much switched out their starting lineup. So it'll be interesting to see what they can do. Um, uh, also interested in Wichita State with the move to a new conference. I'm, I'm a big Wichita State. Yeah, I wouldn't the Shockers. Say, a, a big fan. But I like the Shockers, right? They're like the small school who's always playing with the big schools. And uh, they're just fun to watch. I want to see uh, what happens there now that they're playing in a new conference. So a few things Michigan State as well uh now that now that they beat Penn State I feel like I need to you know show some show some respect <laughs> and uh I, I want to see what they do but they're looking like they could be making a serious run at a national championship this year so we'll be watching closely I I would like to caveat before we jump off I watch more than the voice that is just the first one that came to my mind because we don't own a lot of TVs and I live with more females than males so podcast <laughs> land please don't judge me but, All but right, I, he's watching I, the voice. I got, I got nothing else. Well, now my credibility shot, so I, I might as well sign <laughs> off. <laughs> well, yeah, we will sign off uh, on this episode of Third String. Thanks again for listening. In the meantime, you can follow the podcast at Third String Pod on Twitter or me at Zach Crippen or Pete at, at Pete, under, Pete underscore Laclede. Uh Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Yeah.